And now, uh, it is my pleasure to welcome today three individuals who have, joy, who have enjoyed great success in and have tremendous knowledge of all things political. Individually, they are Kathleen Monk, David Hurley, and our own Canadian Club President, Jamie Watt. Collectively, they are the insiders, part of CBC The National's Tuesday lineup and joining us today for their first ever live appearance. The insiders are a must-watch for Canada's political set. They know the issues, of course, uh, but they can also tell us the story behind the story, sharing the strategies and the decisions that shape the country's most important political stories. Watching them is very much like watching a master class in Canadian politics. And for three people who proudly wear three very different political sweaters, their panel is characterized by a refreshing amount of mutual, mutual respect, good humor, and even admiration. So without further ado, may I present the insiders. <laughs> Kathleen Monk served as the late NDP leader Jack Layton, uh, served for him in various capacities between 2006 and 2011 including during last May's historic election campaign. She is now the executive director of the Broadbent Institute. Uh, David Hurley, immediately on my left, is a longtime Liberal. He was a key strategist for Prime Minister Paul Martin uh, in his successful leadership campaign and a top advisor to Mr. Martin while he was Prime Minister. He is now the principal partner at the Gandalf Group. Jamie Watt cut his political teeth as a senior member of the Conservative Premier Mike Harris's team, and since then he has led many groundbreaking election campaigns at all levels of government. He is the Executive Chairman and Senior Partner at Navigator Limited. Please join me in welcoming the insiders. I think I have to go first because I have the most tenuous claim to be here. I knew after the last election that uh, being a liberal insider, I had best be on my, my best behavior um, to stay part of it. Liberal insider being uh, close to an oxymoron, perhaps like ministerial accountability or something like that. <laughs> Allison said this was the first um, this, that collectively we were the insiders, but of course that isn't true because everybody knows that the most important insider is Peter Mansbridge. Right. And that the insiders panel is not complete without Peter Mansbridge. I am contractually obligated to say that at every appearance. We all are. <laughs> right. I want to thank you all for coming. It's a, a little smaller crowd than I had hoped, because uh, Peter tells us quite regularly that 1.2 million people see us when we appear on the National. So then I think what we're going to do is we're going to do this at 2 o'clock and at 3 o'clock and at 4 o'clock, <laughs> and we'll add all of them together and we'll probably get up to a reasonable number. Uh, the conceit of this program today is that we introduce ourselves before the question period with an aspect that makes us insiders to politics. Uh, I've done a few things over 40 years in politics. I've been president of the Young Liberals. I've sat on the National Executive of the Liberal Party. I've been a counselor to ministers, and I've worked on federal budgets, and I've been involved in many campaigns. 
But there was one decision that I was involved in that would help determine the course of an election campaign, and that's the example I'd like to cite about what qualifies me, other than Peter's uh, benediction, as an insider. The 2004 campaign that I was one of the national co-chairs of for the Liberal Party had gotten off to a disastrous start. We'd lost the battle for the frame of the election right off the bat. It wasn't about the big ideas that Paul Martin had wanted to run on. Rather, the decision had become all about time for a change and a desire to punish the Liberal Party for the sponsorship scandal augmented by a little health levy that had been imposed here in Ontario by our friends in the new McGuinty provincial government. Far from heading to a majority, and that had been everybody's expectation that the Liberals under Paul Martin were going to win the big, we kind of fed that expectation a little bit, um, were going to win a big majority, our votes were moving to the Conservatives in numbers that would lead to our outright defeat. Some emergency focus groups that we conducted told us that a lot of people knew little or nothing of Mr. Harper or his party's program and beliefs. They assumed that the alternative would be very similar to the Liberals in terms of policy, but different in sense of entitlement and complacency. It was a safe way to register one's anger about sponsorship and about the other weight accumulated from more than a decade in office. Our policy-oriented advertising, which was shot in beautiful film out at Harrington Lake, expensive, visually stunning, was wallpaper. It was having no impact and was tuned out by voters. We were losing the votes of people who agreed with us and disagreed with Mr. Harper. We felt we needed to do something to shock people, to get them to reassess their choices and to understand that there were differences between the two parties. Their vote would have consequences. My national co-chair, John Webster, suggested that we start by talking to female voters. They had the most profound differences with Mr. Harper. Jack Ben-Simon, David Rosenberg, Peter Byrne, and the crack team at Ben-Simon Byrne Advertising took the brief from those groups and our survey research that indicated the issues that women voters most cared about. They created the advertisement I'm going to show you. I warn you, it's graphic, hard-hitting for its time, although, thankfully, no mention of Hitler. <laughs> Nigel, roll the tape. Stephen Harper would have sent our troops to Iraq. He'd spend billions on tanks and aircraft carriers, weaken our gun laws, and scrap the Kyoto Accord. He'd sacrifice Canadian-style health care for U.S.-style tax cuts. He won't protect a woman's right to choose. And he's prepared to work with the Bloc Québécois. Stephen Harper says when he's through with Canada, we won't recognize it. You know what? He's right. This message brought to you by the Liberal Party of Canada. Conservatives and some others hated that ad with a passion. And some may want to pick away at the truth of some of the assertions. I'll hang around after lunch and debate every one of them with anybody <laughs> that wants to have at them. But I will focus here on the political impact of that advertisement. When we took that ad back out to focus groups to test it, that ad is modestly and benignly entitled Multi-Scene Manifesto. When we tested that ad in new focus groups with voters who had left the Liberals for the Conservatives, the reaction was strong and clear. People hated it. 
They found it aggressive, they found it shocking, they deplored the focus on the flaws of our opponent and suggested that if we had any integrity at all, we would instead tell the positives about us instead of focusing on the negatives of our opponent. But after watching that ad, none of the people in that group were going to vote Conservative. And they knew why. Previously, they had known only one thing about the election, that it was about punishing liberal arrogance and corruption. Now they knew some other things, things they cared about even more. I felt that we needed to run that ad and that it would change the trajectory of the campaign. But there was a lot of internal resistance. We've become so used to negative advertising that we may have forgotten that there was a time not too long ago when it was considered controversial. Many people, including old hands in the Liberal Party and even members of the Red Leaf Advertising Advisory Team, strongly advised against putting that ad on television. There was a feeling it would provoke a backlash that would make things even worse. We felt the need, so, strong, so controversial inside the party was this, that we felt the need to warn our candidates about what was happening so that they could echo and support the ad when it appeared rather than distance themselves from it. One MP, or at least one MP, gave the conference call coordinates to the national media. I awoke the next morning to an above-the-fold headline quoting me as describing the desperate spiral that the Liberal campaign was in. Unhelpful. <laughs> but we decided to move ahead with it. We bundled it together into a full campaign onslaught. The ad went on the air in heavy rotation. Scott Reed and Tim Murphy, we're all here, by the way, huddled together for protection, us remaining Liberals. <laughs> made the leaders tour take on a much more aggressive approach consistent with the messaging in that ad. Our war room went on a relentless search for evidence from conservative candidates and MPs as well as the extensive archival material of Mr. Harper on the record to create fresh news stories reinforcing those messages. And then we all held our breath to see what would happen. Immediately, support for the conservatives stopped growing. The number of Canadians with a negative attitude about the Conservatives and about Mr. Harper began to increase. The importance of issues like health care began to rise, and the relative importance of sponsorship began to fall. Within days, those shifts in underlying attitudes began to manifest themselves in voters moving back to the Liberal Party, away from their flirtation with the Conservatives. There were, as there always are, many factors involved in the final result of an election, Decisions made in all camps, mistakes made in all campaigns, external interventions nobody could foresee or control all contributed to how what looked like a certain defeat became kind of a win. But if you were looking for one turning point when the momentum shifted, it would be when this ad aired. I made a lot of mistakes and I made a lot of bad decisions, but on this one we got it right and I was on the inside. Thank you very much. Look forward to your questions. Thanks, David. You're a hard act to follow, as always. Um, I'm going to take advantage of this very expensive desk that was brought in for this event and, and sit behind it. Um, so listen, two times a month, approximately, Peter and Leslie and Laura, the producers uh, for CBC, ask us to come into the CBC studios, the three of us, and peel back the curtain, if you will. Uh, take a look at the decisions that we make as political insiders and talk about the strategies and some of the tactics. So that's what I'm going to try to do today is talk to you about one example that I experienced and tell you how we attacked it. 
And the insider is actually a great concept because the one thing that politicos and journalists have in common is that we love to tell a great campaign war story. And we love at times to listen to ourselves speak. <laughs> and actually after the 2011 campaign, I have a lot of stories and a lot of war stories that I could talk to you about and some that I can't. Um, but what I wanted to talk to you about today is actually what happened just after the election. So while my colleagues were taking down lawn signs and toasting to our great success, Jack asked me um, to take on a particular assignment. And that was, he asked me to make sure that the media treated a newly elected Quebec MP fairly. And yes, he was talking about that 20-something bar manager that had that short visit to Vegas in the middle of the campaign. Ruth Ellen Berceau, did never, never visited her riding. Her French was incredibly rusty, and she didn't knock on a door, not once, not ever. In fact, so my challenge that was before me that Jack asked me to take on was pretty great. Let's uh, play some tape and show you exactly what I was up against. Bercheville, Quebec was part of the orange wave that voted NDP for the first time. Problem is, Many say they've never seen or heard from their new MP, Ruth Ellen Brousseau. She worked at this campus bar in Ottawa, spent part of the campaign in Vegas, and lives more than 300 kilometers from the riding she now represents. Brousseau's whereabouts have prompted these spoof <laughs> images online. The NDP is protecting her from going public, despite her new $150,000 salary as an MP. It was negative headline after negative headline. In fact, my media team, which was quite large at the time, had never fielded so many calls, ever. And that's pretty significant considering the campaign that we had just gone through. But now in politics, just like in business, you've got to protect your brand. You've got to manage your reputation. I knew that that was crucial, so I knew something had to be done, and I knew it had to be done quickly. The 24-hour news cycle waits for no one. At this point, media were camped outside of Ruth Ellen's parents' house. They were stalking our front doors at the NDP headquarters. We had to do something. But what to do was up for debate. There's not a lot of consensus always in war rooms or in back rooms, much less than I think that people publicly perceive. So people in those back rooms argue with me quite strongly that we should cut our losses. We should cut her loose. We should make her resign. Ethically and strategically, I thought it was a bad idea, and I argued against it. The ethics of it, for me at least, were clear. This was a candidate that was asked to run by the party. She put her name on a ballot. The riding democratically elected her. In fact, she had a 6,000 vote spread between her and her closest opponent. <laughs> I remind you, she didn't knock on a single door. Ever. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> Strategically, though, also, I knew it was a bad decision. As an insider, as a politico, I knew strategically this would be the wrong decision. If Ruth Ellen were to resign, it would only fuel calls for others to resign. We had a lot of new MPs. Who else would be next to fall? Both political parties and the media are like sharks. You put blood in the water, there's going to be a feeding frenzy. That thing is at least clear. And then there were my own personal beliefs. Now, I've worked on both sides of the parliamentary fence. I've been a news producer, so I've seen how stories um, get to air. I've also been uh, a policy uh, a politico, so to speak, so I've seen how policy can get developed. And I have to tell you, it can be pretty ugly on both sides of the fence most of the time. But I have to say that those conversations that I had with journalists 
last May, for those first few days of May last year, were some of the worst that I've ever had in my entire career. Personally, I believe it's really important to have more women involved in politics. I felt that I had to fight back strongly against the desire of the media and other political parties to cannibalize this young woman just because she didn't fit the mold and her life credit, her life experience was not up to snuff. So what was I supposed to do? What was the decision I was supposed to make as an insider? Well, first I had to get the story. So after three or four days of other people managing this cause, Jack asked me to take on the challenge. I got her into a room, I grabbed her, I sat her down. I had to get her story. And luckily, she had a great one. She had a great story. It just needed to be told. She was a young single mother trying to make ends meet. She had to make career choices based on the benefits she could receive if she ever had to pay braces for a kid in the future. Second, I had to manage some of the details. We had to keep her under wraps. This meant that we were going to take a few hits for the first few days because we weren't actually doing media. We kept her under wraps so that we could have a great first impression. And we had to manage some of the things that don't come naturally, like speaking to the media, like knowing what clothes work on TV and what clothes don't work on TV. And unfortunately, for women in politics, you have to deal with the hair. You have to deal with the hair. Ask Hillary Clinton. It's always an issue for women. Third, we had to tell the story on our own terms how we wanted it told. So we spoke to her local media first. These were the people who elected her. She owed them her story, not the national media. And this caused a lot of arguments. There were many national columnists, many national reporters who felt that they were entitled to the first interview. But we stuck to our plan, we stuck to our rollout, and now, a year later, she's really an MP that I think is worth watching. Take a look at this tape. Tout le monde est vraiment gentil. Je suis vraiment excitée. And Ruth Ellen, uh, congratulations. You've got mayor saying that you're charming, that you've been working hard. I know you hated that nickname that people gave you right out of the gate, Vegas. And we won't, that's the last time you'll hear it from me. Okay. It's been a very busy year, but a very uh, fulfilling year. Um, I've learned a lot, um, asked a lot of questions, and uh, I'm happy with the way things are, and I'm looking forward to the future. Donc, uh, je pense que... She's planning on running in 2015, and she's just been appointed our deputy agriculture critic for the NDP. She's got one of the strongest riding associations in all of Quebec. She's appeared on Tout le monde en Paul, and her questions in the House are totally solid, and the mayors of her region love her and want her to be re-elected. In my opinion, Ruth Ellen Brousseau really represents the best of what we need in Parliament. We need people who come from diverse backgrounds with a range of experiences and who are in different stages of their life. And that doesn't just go for the back, the front benches, excuse me. We also need people in the back rooms and in the war rooms who better reflect Canadian society. And after that amazing campaign with Ruth Ellen, I can say that she really is a star or a vraie vedette. I think. Uh, this young woman's story really tells in this past year of going from crisis and controversy to what is good and right in politics. And I think honesty and character are important. And I think that when Canadian politics has a little bit more of that, I think we'll be on the right track. Thank you. Well, I knew I was going third today, so I wasn't really sure what uh, I could talk about that might uh, be able to interest you after you heard from my colleagues. And uh, the topic I picked, I'm a bit 
sense of trepidation because uh, an expert, uh, much more expert than I, Randy Dawson, is in the room. But I thought you guys might like to hear a little bit about uh, Alberta last week and uh, just what happened in that particular election. <laughs> this is... Uh, <laughs> I didn't know if I was allowed to do this at the Canadian Club, but I figured, what the hell, I'm the president, I'm gonna go for it. <laughs> Everywhere I go, uh, everyone from Peter Mansbridge, an informed commentator, to the least informed commentators, asked me the same question. What happened in Alberta? I'm gonna try and provide you with some context. Uh, at the end of the day, um, whoops, at the end of the day, um, this election came down to a choice. And it was very much like the free trade election where there were very clear differences on offer from the two major uh, parties. Uh, one, Ms. Smith wanted to build a firewall, and the other, Ms. Redford, wanted to build a bridge to the future. And that's not just rhetoric, that was actually what they both, what they both put on offer. And that clear choice gave Albertans a, a clear choice in terms of uh, which way they wanted to vote. So the question is, you know, what happened or or how, how did that all take place? And I think to answer that, there are, are just two basic questions. The first would be, why did it work? Um, and like my remote control, it's not working. Um, so the first question uh, is, why did it work? And it worked because, if I could have someone can give me my next slide. It worked because people think that this is the, the face of Alberta. Uh, this is. People have Ralph Klein, you know, imprinted on their memory as an iconic image of, of what Alberta is, and, and it really isn't. Um, the really, this is the face of Alberta now, and that, of course, is Mayor Nenshi, the new mayor of Calgary. And as different as those two mayors are, they really sum up the fundamental difference in that province. The amount of net in, in migration from Canada and, and immigration from around the world has fundamentally changed the Alberta people and, and who they are. Electing Alison Redford, the uh, leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, and Nenshi, the mayor of Calgary, I would submit, are not flukes, but part of a changing dynamic which was played out in the election. Um, so how then did the story get missed? And I think the story got missed for two reasons. One, commentators wanted to tell the story of an upset. They wanted there to be this this historic night, the end of a 42-year dynasty. And, and telling that story became very, very appealing to people. It's the old story, if every problem you have, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And I think that's what took place in this particular case. People were rushing to write that story, and including some people who actually rushed those stories into print in a, our Canadian version of Dewey Beats Truman. Um, the second reason I think the story got missed is because commentators and others don't have the same tools that insiders have. And insiders have three important tools that let us see and uh, understand what was happening in a different way. The first tool, of course, is public opinion. And if we look here, this is our very worst uh, day in the campaign. So in that uh, day on April 17th, uh, you see the difference between the wild rose at the top and the progressive conservative party at the bottom. The thing about polls is that people think that they, they tell you something, and they do, but when they say they're a snapshot, they really are. One way to think about it is if there's a, 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 a camera at an intersection taking pictures every 20 minutes, 
it can miss an accident, right? You can take a picture and everything is fine. Then an accident can take place, the accident can be removed, and then you, you see that everything is fine again when really something has taken place. So we really need to look at the dynamic of public opinion and look at how it's moving. And as insiders, we're tracking every night. So instead of doing polls once in a while, we're doing the same poll night after night after night. And so you can see what began to happen here as we began to close the gap. Now look at the next spot. We actually open up the gap, and that's when most people stopped polling. That was three days, or two days rather, before election day. But when you see that kind of growth, there's no reason to think the growth has stopped just because the polling has stopped. And if you run, in the next slide, we'll run that out to uh, election day, and you can actually see where the vector went and where we ended up. So it's that notion, and that's something that even people who are just, just interested who read the paper, you, know, you have to look at the, at the, the dynamic. How is pu public opinion moving? Because all these things take a little bit of time. The next uh, uh, thing that we had to look at and to give us some satisfaction was money. The money is incredibly smart. And in a campaign, it's like the canary in the proverbial cold mine. The money will figure it out who's going to win much before any pollster or any journalist or anyone else does. And in this case, money poured into us. And crucially, it poured into us in two forms. It poured into us on our website, which is on the screen now, unsolicited. And it also poured in on a solicited basis. So when our canvassers were going out raising money from the big shots in the oil patch, they started writing checks, millions of dollars pouring in at the end of the campaign. Pretty good sign that something is afoot. And finally, we uh, did a teletown hall. It's a new technology you might have heard about. What you do is you, pardon the expression, but you robocall a constituency of <laughs> people, but not for nefarious purposes. And, and you say that your, your candidate is going to be available to a teletown hall um, at a certain time. In our case, because it was the end of the campaign, we had to do it on Saturday. And Saturday morning is about the most crummy time you can schedule something like that. Families are busy. They've got errands to do. Kids are probably playing chauffeur to their kids, you know, getting them to baseball and, and ballet and swimming and art and everything else. And we got 30,000 people to a uh, town hall meeting uh, two days before the election. Now that means people were interested in hearing more and wanting to make a decision to choose Ms. Redford over Ms. Smith. So when we look at the dynamic of public opinion and how it was moving, when we look at the money that was coming in, when we look at uh, the interest in the Teletown Hall, when we put it against a contrast campaign of firewall versus bridge to a future, we got uh, to that uh, point where we were pretty sure we were going to hold government. Now, confession time. Nobody... Well, I'll put it another way. Do you know what you call somebody in Alberta who predicted 61 seats? A liar. Because nobody <laughs> picked, predicted 61 seats. So we were pretty sure we'd hold government, but we didn't think we'd do as, as well as we did. And that's the story of uh, last Monday. Actually, a week ago, uh, hard to imagine, I guess, a week ago, a week ago today, and uh, what, happened, what happened in Alberta. So those are the opening comments from the three of us. We really were hoping to make this, I think we've gone on, as Jim Flaherty says, as, almost as long as it seems. And um, <laughs> we can't use the joke that we're, we're always short, but today we'll be brief. But um, if anybody's got questions, we've got this fancy technology. If you want to text CAN Club and uh, 37607, CAN Club 37607, we'll get your questions. And there's also question cards around the room. We'd be happy to take your questions. And uh, maybe I'll just ask uh, David a question to get us going. But we really want your questions. 
Um, one of the stories, just reverting back to Alberta for a moment, you're one of Canada's best pollsters. Mm -hmm. A lot of people asking uh, stories about pollsters and polling and whatever. Any thoughts from last week or the last couple of elections? Well, I think that what you said is, uh, I think that what you said is pretty important, but uh, actually myself and, and my colleagues at the Gandalf Group wrote a, an analysis for policy options of the polling in the federal election, and one of the things that we isolated was that all of these media organizations want polling and none of them have any budget to pay for it. And so they're getting the most uh, superficial, top line, here's what the horse race says today kind of numbers, and they miss what you were talking about, Jamie, in terms of missing the underlying dynamic of the campaign. And if they were able to do as the party internal polling is doing, which is asking deeper attitudinal questions. Yeah. As I said in the comments about that advertisement, there were a number of indicators that moved attitudes about Mr. Harper, attitudes about the Conservative Party, attitudes about what issues were important. A lot of those indicators moved before votes actually shifted. And so, but if you're not asking those kinds of questions, you don't know uh, what the underlying dynamic is and where things are likely to go. And uh, you know, for the umpteenth election in a row, we seem to have seen people stop polling um, uh, too early. And uh, in these days of very, very ruthless voters and weak partisan affiliation, I think that uh, you have to assume there's a lot of people that are at least potentially going to make up their minds in the last mm -hmm, day. Mm -hmm. Just to add to that, as a political practitioner, it was... It felt good, actually, <laughs> that the media got it so wrong. Not that you ever want to blame the media. <laughs> but as somebody who spent the first two weeks of the last campaign arguing with journalists that, no, you've got to look at the trends, you've got to look at what's happening in Quebec, look where we were in the polls with francophones um, prior in the last eight months prior to the election, there's room for us to grow. So having had those conversations with journalists time and time again, be careful how you report this, look at other data points, um, like Jamie had mentioned, like fundraising or, for instance, um, you know, people joining up for the campaign or campaign signs. There's so many different data points that you can take in order to draw a conclusion. And too often, um, we go for the easy one and, and go for polls, and it's not always the most accurate. So a question uh, for you, Kathleen. Uh, do you see any prospect for proportional representation and greater cooperation between parties? Not now that they're second. <laughs> <laughs> oh, David. <laughs> Uh, I do see a great uh, possibility for cooperation. In fact, that's something that Jack um, always, uh, coming from really municipal politics, he was used to that kind of cooperation to get things done, to get a sign installed on a street or whatever. He was used to working across, and there aren't really partisan politics at the municipal level uh, to the same extent as there are on the federal or the provincial levels. Um, that said, I think that Mr. Mulcair also is interested in cooperation, but cooperation is different than a merger. Um, I think that uh, looking to the next election, um, any one of the possible outcomes, of course, would be a minority coalition government. I think that's a distinct possibility. Um, to the specific question regarding proportional representation, um, our party has always uh, promoted that as a policy, and we've had other, we've had difficulty, frankly, getting other uh, parties on board in the past. Wink, wink, nudge, <laughs> nudge. Um, hopefully, we can have more progress on that in the future. Yeah, I think one of the things that if I was uh, thinking about whether you wanted to have a, you know, some kind of entente cordiale or some kind of, you know, agreement with other parties, I'm not even sure the basis that you do that because the, the swings in public opinion are so huge at the moment 
that we don't really have a new world or a new order settled into on which you could actually decide how you wanted to negotiate or what you wanted to trade off. I mean, we see these crazy swings. I mean, if you, again, not to make this all about Alberta, it's just that it's fresh. I mean, we had a 20-point swing within that, uh, that election time, right? So this is a pretty volatile time to make structural. I can see you mm -hmm. might want to do some short-term things, but it doesn't seem at a time when you, you really want to lock yourself into a long-term proposition when you've really got uh, such um, short-term structural uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, David, yeah, this is maybe uh, a good question for you, and it's because it's signed by Michael Ignatieff. I didn't know Michael was here, but it was very nice of him to send a question. <laughs> Have you ever considered moving from the sidelines to run for elected office? Uh, if I had, watching him would have ended it, that is for sure. <laughs> um. No, I, I haven't, and I'm not, and I, I think that... Uh, this panel is probably providing some fairly conclusive evidence that the skills that are required to be effective in the back rooms are not necessarily the same skills that are effective uh, in the front rooms. And uh, no, I, I don't think that I... Um, people who go into public life, in addition to uh, all of the... Um, all of the public travails that we're aware of, and people often talk about, you know, your personal life and you're going to be under a lot of scrutiny and you're going to be criticized for this, that, and the other thing. But it's just an incredible amount of work. And I don't think people realize that, that it really has to be, if you're going to be starting from winning a riding and being an effective member of parliament and moving there up, that has to be fundamentally what your life is about. And everything else in your life is going to take a backseat to being in politics for as long as you're there. And that is an enormous level of commitment that I don't think most people are aware of. Mm -hmm. Kathleen, what, do, what role do public apologies play in crisis management? Well, you can manage a crisis better if you get out in front of it and say sorry. I mean, we've seen an example of that just so recently with the $16 glass of orange juice, right, and the limo rides uh, from the Savoy. Um, my party can't even pronounce that rest of that hotel <laughs> because it's just so foreign <laughs> um, to us. The idea you'd spend $16 on a glass of orange juice. Um, no, I think that apologies are incredibly important. I think that, um, I think, you know, you've got to get out in front of things. I, I gave an example earlier this year on, on the show, actually, talking about Peter Goldring and his um, uh, drunk driving case that was against him. And I used that as an example. He quickly stepped aside, dealt with a problem, and then it didn't become a problem for his caucus. I think um, Ruth Allen also is an example of that. She was unapologetic for her role. She said, you know what? My French is rusty. I didn't knock on a door. She was honest about that. And I think that that endeared her to, to her riding. And now she speaks French fluently, and she's great out on the street, and they love her because she's shown them how you can change over the course of a year. But you do really have to get it all out front early. And the whole mm -hmm. Bevota thing reveals the biggest mistakes you can make, yeah. which is only apologize for as much as you feel compelled to apologize for that day. Yeah. Um, and rather than anticipating what are all the things I'm eventually going to have to apologize for, and yeah. let's, let's deal Sorry. with that right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, and we uh, call, so nothing worse than the dribs and drabs approach. We call that going to end game, right? You might as well go to the end game as soon as That's you can right. and as quickly as possible. I mean, I can actually answer the two questions together. I mean, the reason I'm not going to run for uh, 
for uh, a public office. It's my bill at the Savoy wouldn't withstand public <laughs> scrutiny. $16 orange juice. I, He's like, that's nothing. You know, that's nothing, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> you should try the new Beaufort bar they have. Um, oh my goodness. <laughs> but I think, I think there's an interesting thing. That there's no question an apology cauterizes things. Yeah. Uh, for a couple of reasons, just like in per your personal life, if you're mad at someone and you've rehearsed this speech, you're going to yell at them, and then the first thing your friend or your partner or colleague or whatever says, look, I'm really sorry, it's pretty hard to keep yelling at them, right? And that's the same thing in politics. One way to cauterize it, to finish it, to stop the questions and question period is to get up and apologize. Yeah. I do worry, though, about this fetish we have for apology. And it's something that we're borrowing, it seems, from America. And I'm wondering if at some point the potency and the power of apology is not going to be diminished. I think we're apologizing for an awful lot of things. And I think there's a difference when we're apologizing for something that we really are sorry for versus something that we're apologizing because it's politically correct or somebody. It's just like you know, in crisis management, if you, don't, you usually have two options. One is to apologize, and the other is to go to rehab. And even if we're not sure what we're sending you to rehab for, the only way to stop the thing is to go off to rehab. So I think we've got to be a little bit, uh, a little bit careful about that. Uh, in uh, the long, over the long um, time, um, here's political leader. That's a good one. Here's a. <laughs> I'm going to give uh, I'm going to give Kathleen a chance to uh, to answer this question, which uh, really, Kathleen, it says uh, not to you, but I'm going to ask you who is uh, who is your role model as a political leader? Wow. Um, hmm. Well, I have to say that I'm really impressed with Andrea Horvath. I mean, obviously she's coming off a couple of good weeks, certainly with her budget negotiations um, with Dalton McGuinty. Uh, so she's always really impressive to me. Um, in terms of why I got into politics, ironically, that I now work for the man, um, it was Ed Broadbent. Um, certainly when I um, was younger, Ed was a true inspiration to me, but I think Seeing um, women, even Lisa McLeod here in Ontario politics, Andrea Horvath, um, the women who have come before um, Jack in the house, Audrey and Alexa, obviously were great role models to me. And David, how should the Liberal Party approach the upcoming election in terms of strategy? And that question is from the students at Porter Collegiate Institute. Geez. I think we got to notice that our time is up, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it smart would be, those kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it would be useful if the Liberal Party started by approaching the next election with a strategy. <laughs> Poor David. And I think that I think that it it finds itself in a very unique position because for the first time in really in history, it has to justify its existence. It has always been uh, one of the two default choices for government in the country and could be lazy enough to rely on that and to just know that when people got, if people got unhappy enough with the Conservative Party that they would vote for the Liberal Party and that we were there as the default. And I think now uh, that works, that same logic works exactly against the Liberal Party. And if the Liberal Party is going to fight back from its current position, it's going to have to take much sharper, much clearer, much bolder offerings to Canadians about what exactly voting Liberal gets you and what kind of government would result 
from that. And so I think it really starts, strategy really starts with a redefinition of the party that acts as a clear justification for its existence. And uh, one more question, which is, uh, what uh, changes would you suggest to get uh, youth, young people involved and in, to uh, reach out and accommodate youth interest in entering politics? And, and I, I'd answer that question a couple of ways. First of all, one of the greatest things about politics is that it really is a meritocracy. No one cares who your mom is or who your dad is or what school people went to. They really just care, can you get the job done? And that's because there's always a shortage of time, a shortage of money, and a shortage of talent in order to get whatever task needs to be done. So that's why politics has been terrific to women, to people of color, to gay people, to all kinds of people over, over time, and giving them a chance to do really interesting and extraordinary things. And I think that applies for young people as well. A lot of it is just getting, you know, knocking on the door and, and volunteering to help. The other half of that, I think, is there's a great opportunity for campaigns which have been revolutionized by technology um, to really embrace uh, the ideas and uh, the vision and the insights of young people. We went through a kind of a wobbly time in politics when, for a long time, when we had one partner working and then one partner who was at home could uh, participate in elections. And then we had two partners working for a while and we lost all our volunteers and we really weren't quite sure how to do this. And now technology and new ideas, much, much of which is powered by young people, have a great opportunity to take advantage of them. So I think we're going to see a huge infusion of that uh, in, the, uh, in the time in the time. But they I don't had. care, Jane. Well, that's the problem because they're cynical because of ads like the one you showed us. <laughs> <laughs> I no, think but, they're but informed to, by the ads, <laughs> I should. But to the students, if you are here and you're thinking about a career in politics, I'd just say it is life-shortening work, so you need to consider that if you really <laughs> want to go into it. That said, it is some of the most rewarding work you could ever pursue in your career. It's, it's you know, when you get a chance to get a story like Attawapiskat on the front pages of the, of the Toronto Star for a few days in a row and you're changing lives, there's nothing like that, so. Yeah, I don't know anybody who's ever regretted it. And if I don't know people who regretted it, who would? <laughs> well, with that, uh, I'd like to, uh, to take a moment and thank the three of you uh, for, for joining us here today. We, we certainly live in interesting times, and for most of us, the insight that we get is, is from... Uh, Peter Mansbridge and, and, and other news media. And so today I think you've brought an interesting perspective from an insider's uh, point of view. And for that, thank you. Thank you, Kathleen, David, and, and Jamie. And on behalf of, of the Canadian Club of Toronto and those of you who are uh, here attending today, appreciate you taking time to join us. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. And we, owe, um, and we owe a big thank you to, uh, to all of you for being guinea pigs and, uh, and coming out for our lunch today. So, and, and mostly a thank you to Peter, who is the inspiration, godfather, guider, and everything else for this thing that we do. So thanks to all of you. Here, here. Oh, th thank you, just to echo Jamie's remarks, to all of you for being here, for Peter Madsbridge and the crew at CBC for coming up with and producing this wonderful show every Tuesday, and a special thank you to the insiders uh, for being with us today. Um, this concludes our television programming, which will broad be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We continue to be grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their promotion of Canadian Club events. 
To learn more about the Canadian Club and our upcoming events, please visit our website at canadianclub.org. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. We are now adjourned.